Well, we are, I'm going to grab a Bible here real quick. We are in, there's not a Bible there real quick, so I'm not going to grab, oh, Bobby took it. Sorry, Bobby, you're going to give me a Bible. Well, we are in the uh, this third, fourth week of this series that we are titled Rebuilding Church, and we're exploring the book of Ezra and Nehemiah together. Really, most scholars suggest, and I agree with them, that it's sort of a cohesive work. Uh, although we separate those books into two separate things, it really is a singular And if you have a Bible this morning or you want to grab one in front of you, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 3. I will race you there. Uh, Ezra is always a joy. It should come right after 2 Chronicles, if you know where that is. And if you don't know where that is, it's right after 1 Chronicles, which is not helpful at all. But if you have a Bible right in front of you, we're going to be picking up on page 467. I invite you this morning, church, to hear the word of the Lord. We'll start in verse 8. Ezra writes these words, in the second month of the second year, after the arrival at the temple of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Yeshua, son of Josedak, their fellow priests and Levites, that's where my son gets his name, by the way, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem began to work. They chose Levites 20 years old and older to be in charge of the building of the temple of the Lord. These men were in charge of the work of building the temple of God. Yeshua and his sons and brothers, Cadmiel and his sons, who were the descendants of Hodaviah, that's a great name, and the sons of Hinnadad and their sons and brothers, they were all Levites. The builders finished laying the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Then the priests dressed in their robes stood with their trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, stood with their cymbals. They all took their places and praised the Lord, just as David, king of Israel, had said to do. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good. His love for Israel continues forever. And then all the people shouted loudly, praise the Lord. The foundation of his temple has been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family leaders who had seen the first temple cried, when they saw the foundation of this temple. Most of the other people were shouting with joy. The people made so much noise it could be heard far away and no one could tell the difference between the joyful shouting and the sad crying. So the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we long and we have gathered here in faith that you are a God who speaks even to people like us even to churches like ours. In some way, it's kind of a crazy thing that we believe that the divine is here and wanting to communicate with us. So we posture ourselves this morning, God. I posture myself, even though I'm the one talking, to receive a word from you. Extend to us the grace that we need to familiarize ourselves with your voice. Speak, O God. For your people are listening in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever been disappointed in life? Perhaps the better question is, when was the most recent time you have been disappointed in life? Disappointment is a natural part. It's a universal part of the human experience. We can be disappointed with the paint color that looked so amazing in the tiny little swatch that we saw at Home Depot. But when we made it our focal point of the wall in our living room, we're like, that is bright. (laughs) 
Uh, we can be disappointed at times where we have thought that we were going to prepare an amazing new meal or dish for Thanksgiving or Easter, and it just doesn't come together well. Disappointment is that experience where our expectations of a thing go unmet because the reality of the thing was so much less than we were hoping. There is a, a meme trend going on. Do you guys know what memes are? Okay, at least I got this for Will. All right, there's a meme trend going on that was talking about this very dynamic, comparing our expectations of a thing versus the thing that is really going on. And so I brought some memes for you. So this is kind of how it works. It says at the top, when I smile, my expectation is that this is what I look like, right? This is like pleasant, beautiful thing. But in reality, I look like I'm just like aggressively like growling at a person I have another one here. This was one of my favorite ones. There's lots of these about Halloween costumes, right? Where you think that you're going to have this wonderful Halloween costume and you have this vision of what it's going to look like and then it's so weird. Like, is that the same character at all? I have a couple more. Here's one. This is what you think sleeping with your pets is going to be like, this cuddle moment with your dog. In reality, you're on the side of the bed and your dog's on your pillow punching you in the face. And this is me right now, actually. When I wear a tight shirt, I think I look like this guy on the right, but reality is my belly is poking out of the bottom of the T-shirt just a little bit. Oh. Is that the last one? I need some more cowbell. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Well, in our text this morning, we find this moment of tremendous disappointment for the Israelites. Israel had been in captivity in Babylon for nearly 70 years. They were displaced from their land, conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And not only were they displaced and shipped off to a country that was not their own, their homes were destroyed, their cities were destroyed, and even the temple in Jerusalem is completely burned to the ground. It laid in ruin and they are released from their exile some 70 years after being conquered by the Babylonians. They've come to return to Jerusalem and to their communities to rebuild everything. In fact, they've been commissioned to do so. You could see that at the beginning of Ezra in chapter 1. And one of the most important things that they were going to build was, this, was the temple. They're going to reconstruct the temple. And this isn't a small thing for Israel to reconstruct Physically, it was supposed to be an impressive structure. It was supposed to be the most grand, impressive structure in the nation of Israel. But theologically, it was even more significant and meaningful. The temple for the first well, not the first century because we're actually in the 6th century BC, the temple for the Israelites, right, is not just a space for them to hold their religious worship services like what we're doing in here, like our sanctuaries. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, you know, there's a church down the street and we're going to build it and we're going to, you know, do this whole thing and then we're going to go there once a week and worship. The temple represented for the Israelites the actual presence of God with God's people. Symbolically, when the temple is destroyed, what that communicates to the Israelites is God is not with you. You don't get to just pretend like God is with you when there's no temple. God is actually not with you. You can't make that claim anymore because there is no temple. See, the temple was that place where heaven and earth dwelt, where God's presence made its dwelling with 
men. This is why the temple is so important for us to understand, side note, what Jesus is all about. Jesus is heaven and earth coming into the flesh, moving into the neighborhood, the presence of God with us. That's why the Holy Spirit is so important. But back to the temple. We find here in the second month of the second year, the Israelites rebuilding the temple. This is a huge deal. It's recognition to them that maybe God is with us after all. Maybe we just don't have to pretend like God is with us. There's this tangible thing where we can recognize and identify that the temple represents that God is with us. And so they collect all of these Levites, right? Those are priests. They're the ones who are supposed to work and operate the temple. They, they get them all together and they begin the construction project that is the temple This was the time of the year after the harvest, and it's the appropriate time for them to start construction. And our text picks up after the builders of the temple have laid the foundation and are ready to dedicate it unto God. They're ready to celebrate this thing that God is doing, and they sing these familiar words. They shout them out loud. God is good. He is good, and his love endures forever. This was to be a joyous occasion, a moment of celebration, and yet, and yet, this action that symbolized that God is with us, that new life is beginning to emerge, we have these two dramatically distinct responses to this moment in time. On the one hand, there's this group of people who are enthusiastic and they're excited about what is happening. They're pumped about the dedication of the temple and all that it represents. They give this shout of praise to God. They have instruments and symbols and they're they're just filled with joy and excitement. They can't wait for the new thing that God is going to do. Ezra seems to suggest that these people who are so excited about the new temple, they had never seen the former temple. They were likely like children that were born in Babylon in exile and all they ever heard were stories about how wonderful the temple was, how important it was for us to rebuild the temple. And they're in this moment like we are doing it. This is happening right here. This is so exciting. They, they can palpably feel that God is up to something new in the world. But then on the other hand, You have this group of people who just weep. They're crying. When I first read this text, I thought, well, maybe they're tears of joy, right? You ever cry because you're so happy? Like when your kids are born, you're like, I'm crying. Or it's just me when you take your wedding vows. But as Ezra informs us, their tears are not tears of, of joy. They're tears of grief and sadness. The second group of people are, are the older priests. They're the older adults who remember what the old temple was like. They had gone off to Babylon and they were, by the, by the grace of God, able to return. And as they see the construction of this new temple, they're just disappointed. They remember the splendor and the glory of God that once filled that old temple. It was amazing. And when they see the meager plans of this tiny little foundation... It's like, oh, those are small rocks that are in there. Just not quite as impressive, not as big. And although we're here singing songs and clanging cymbals, the reality is this is nothing like it was the first time that Solomon's temple was dedicated. You see, if you went back into 1 Kings chapter 8 and the, the dedication of that first temple, 
there's this really dramatic moment where the Ark of the Covenant is placed into the holy holies of the temple. And when it's placed there, it holds the Ten Commandments and it was the presence of God. There's this cloud that hovers over the temple and it's so thick that the priests who are worshiping and and leading and offering sacrifices in there just can't even stay in there. And the text reads this way, it says, it says the, the priests left the holy place and a cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue the work because the temple was filled with the glory of God. And those standing here in this moment looking at a foundation with tiny rocks are thinking, man, that's just not as impressive as it used to be. They're thinking to themselves, this is it? Have you ever been there before? Not just disappointed about paint colors or a meal, but like that profound, deep, bitter, painful kind of disappointment. Perhaps in a marriage, perhaps in a job, with your children, with a church. That kind of disappointment that leads to weeping and crying. You see, anytime there is something new, anytime there is a turning of the page of sorts, anytime that there's a new chapter to be written, anytime we experience change, there is the possibility of either of these responses to grip our hearts and imaginations. Enthusiasm and excitement about a new thing or sadness and grief. And it would be easy for us, it would be easy for me to make heroes of those who are pumped up for the new thing that God is doing, right? Uh, Those who are excited about that God has freed his people, it's the second exodus once again and they're going to experience and be shaped and formed into the holy people that God intended them to be in the holy land and it would be easy for me to say, like, look how lame these people are. They are an anchor beyond, like, to what everything that God is doing in these people. They're grieving the sad, amazing thing that's happening. But we and I need to extend more patience to the grieving Israelites in this moment. You see, when something new is about to burst into the world, it means that something is going to be different. Something different means something is not going to be the way that it once was. And we call that change. And change is a lot of things, but change experientially for everybody, universally, is loss. Even if that change is positive, even if that change is good and wonderful and necessary, when we experience change, what we experience is loss. And when we lose things, it's sad. And when we lose things, We grieve. When I was in seminary, I think I got a picture up here. I worked at Long Beach First Church. Oh, no, I didn't send that one, did I? Did I send that one? Oh, I did. Good. There it is. That's my Instagram page, by the way. Give me a follow, likes. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. When I was in seminary, I worked at Long Beach First Church of the Nazarene. The church was incredibly kind to me. Super warm, accepting, encouraging. It was a really meaningful time in my life. I was just uh, going through some old stuff here, actually, in our church here, and I found this picture of summer camp of 2012. Uh, I didn't, it's not up here. But it was a camp that I had directed and led, and it was done with, like, the Anaheim District Church of the Nazarene, the Los Angeles District Church of the Nazarene, 
we had about 350 kids come to Big Bear and the kids that were here in this photo and some that were not in the photo, they loved that I was in charge because it made them feel like they were in charge, right? <laughs> Just like bossing people around, telling them what to do. And in that camp photo, like our group is like front and center, like we're the most important people. But it was a meaningful time. We had a tremendous youth ministry and I, this picture is actually from my last night there. I had been called to serve as an associate pastor in the Santa Barbara church, which was a good thing. It was a necessary thing. It was a wonderful thing. But it was change. And with change came loss. And so that night, this night, before we took this photo, you can't see it here, but we were all crying at this point. I sat all the kids in a circle, and I told them, each one of them individually, exactly what I thought about them. Like, like with no, no holding back anything. I find too often what is the case is that we, we don't tell people the things that we positively think about them. And I didn't want those kids to walk away not knowing what I actually thought about them. And so I just went one by one. This is what I think, Brett. This is what I think, Megan. This is what I think, Chloe, Melody. Go down the list of students. And we just cried. And we cried. It was a holy moment, but we cried because we were all losing something. Change always involves loss, and it's important for us to recognize this. Because if we don't recognize what people are losing, it's e it, it becomes very possible for us to lose people amidst change. Uh, let me say that again. If we don't understand what people are losing we very easily might lose people. I just took this class recently on um, addiction, drug addiction. And one of the things that we talked about is that when you are an addict, and this hits, by the way, I hope my brothers are watching. My brother, who I haven't seen in like four years, is coming into town on Thursday. You can pray for us. He struggled with addiction. We just have not seen him or his girlfriend. I've never met her, so... Pray for us. It's a big deal. Anyways, but with addiction, one of the things that we talked about is just how difficult it is for people to get out of addiction. And one of the things that makes it impossible sometimes for people to get out is that their addiction is caught up in a community of people. You don't recognize and realize that addicts, it's like a whole network of friendships and relationships that they're connected with. And when you ask somebody to leave their addiction, what you're as actually asking them is to leave all the most meaningful relationships that they have in their lives as well. And so that's why one of the most important things that you can do, right, if you're struggling with addiction or whatever, is that you join a, a group like AA. Because what it functionally serves as is it becomes your new network. It becomes your new community. It becomes your new group of friendships and meaningful connections that you have in life. And what's easy for us sometimes is to say like, hey, get out of addiction. You need to just quit. You just need to stop. You need to do X, Y, and Z. And never take the, the, the moment to understand what are we actually asking them to do and be willing to be the kinds of people who stand in as community and friends with these people. You see, if we don't recognize what it is that people are losing in the midst of change, we lose people. And so we have to be the kinds of people who recognize that it's okay to grieve. 
sometimes when there is change. And yet, we also need to be anchored in the reality that change and loss isn't just inevitable. It is necessary in the Christian life. The Christian life and the life of faith necessarily involves change and loss. Jesus says this wonderful thing that that many of you probably already know. He says you can't put new wine in old wineskins because the new wine will burst the new wineskin. What you actually need is new wine in new wineskins. Or there's another teaching where Jesus talks about, he says, when a seed falls into the ground, it has to die in order that new life might be created from within. That if we're ever going to experience the newness of of what God wants to do in the world, what's going to be a part of that is loss and change. The death of some things. And that's okay. You see, that actually is the good news about the Christian life. Is that we have a hopefulness that despite the the death or the loss of things, that we, we have anticipation of resurrection in our lives. That God can always bring about a new thing. And it might look different from the old thing, But God is going to do a new thing. Amen? And what anchors us in life as we experience all of the changes that are going on all of the time is the truth that resurrection life is bursting forth in the world and in us. We have to have a shift in the way that we understand loss and change when God is involved. Levi used to do this thing when um, I would put him to bed. We would read books, right? We would talk about how desperately he needs to hydrate his body. Right? Like, I need water, water, I need water. There is no person more concerned about hydration than a three-year-old who you're trying to put to bed, right? He's like, it's the most important thing in the moment. You're like, geez, Louise. Right? But we would do this thing where I'd read books, we'd do the water, I'd do the whole song and dance, you know, like, oh, you're going to bed now. And I'd walk out. And I'd walk out the hallway, and he would go, Daddy, no love yous. And that meant like, you know, I don't love you. And what would happen, I would run into the bed, and I'd be like, you love me, you do love me, come on. You know, we'd do this whole thing, and we'd do it two times every night, two times. And I'd be like, all right, yeah, he'd say, all right, Daddy, love you. And then I would, I would walk out of the room, and then he would say it again, Daddy, no love yous. And I'd go back in, and I'd tickle him, and I'd be like, I love you, you love me, you have to tell me you love me, or I'm not going to stop tickling me. He'd say, I love you, Daddy. And then we'd walk out, and he'd be like, Daddy, no love yous. And I was like, nope, we're done. <laughs> like, and I remember, I remember thinking, like, there's going to be a night where I walk out into the hallway, and he's not going to say that anymore. And sure enough, like a year ago, you know, I walk out, and he just doesn't say it anymore. And I'm like, dang. I'm like, maybe I'll just stand here in the hallway for a minute, you know, and see if he'll do it again. And you go out there, and I'm like telling Paige, it's like, you think he's going to do it? <laughs> you know, like he's got to do it, right? Well, that season of our life is over. But we have a different season now in our life together. And what we have to recognize is not so much the thing that we're losing here, but that we have this new thing that is emerging in us. And this is always the truth about church. This is always the truth about faith and God's people. We can be the kinds of people who, who just cannot let go of what was. Or we can grieve those losses and step into the thing that God is doing. And the new thing that God is doing may not be that impressive. 
we might look at the new thing that God is doing and be like, this is it. This is the foundation. This is what I lost all of that for was this pile of rocks and dirt right here that these guys are excited about, but it's not really that impressive. But the one thing that we can be sure of, the one thing actually, I'll just end with this last comment, that we can be sure of, that God is at work. God is at work in our church, and God is at work in us in bringing about something new. Amen? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.